Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Les Enlumineurs podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Racnello. And today we will be discussing New Year's gifting, and we'll finish up the episode with the adoration of the Magi. So, this is a season of gift-giving, both due to sacred holidays like Christmas and Hanukkah, but also due to days that we consider more secular, such as New Year's Eve, which is also known as Old Year's Day. In the Gregorian calendar, the most widely used calendar system today, the new year occurs on January 1st, which is New Year's Day, and the celebrations for the new year occur on December 31st, which is the last day of the old year. This was also the first day of the year in the original Julian calendar and the Roman calendar. Other cultures observe their traditional or religious New Year's Day according to their own customs, typically because they use a lunar calendar or a lunisolar calendar. Chinese New Year, the Islamic New Year, and the Jewish New Year are among these well-known examples. In many countries, New Year's Eve is celebrated at evening parties, where people dance and eat and drink and watch or light fireworks and bang pots and pans. Contrary to common belief, the civil new year of January 1st is not an Orthodox Christian holiday. The Eastern Orthodox liturgical calendar makes no provision for the observance of a new year. January 1st is itself a religious holiday, but that's because it's the feast of the circumcision of Christ and a commemoration of various different saints. While the liturgical calendar begins on September 1st, there is also no particular religious observance attached to the start of the new cycle. Orthodox nations might, however, make civil celebrations for the new year. Those who adhere to the revised Julian calendar, including Bulgaria, Cyprus, Egypt, Greece, and Turkey, observe both the religious and civil holidays on January 1st. During the Middle Ages in Latin Europe, while the Julian calendar was still in use, authorities moved New Year's Day, depending on locale, to one of several other days, including March 1st, March 25th, Easter, September 1st, and December 25th. Many medieval New Year's celebrations were held on March 25th, which is the Feast of the Annunciation, a religious holiday that celebrated the coming of the angel Gabriel to Mary, with news that she would bear the Son of God, as we discussed a few episodes ago. The streets would be filled with processions on March 25th, and people would make offerings to Mary. Since then, many national civil calendars have changed to use one fixed date for the New Year's Day, that is, January 1st, most doing so when they adopted the Gregorian calendar. A popular medieval festival celebrated on January 1st was the Feast of Fools. This festival originated in the south of France. 
The celebration is essentially a social inversion, during which a mock ecclesiastic court was held, complete with even a mock pope. During this time, the lower classes dressed up, and they got to poke fun at the upper classes. Some scholars have suggested that the Feast of Fools looks back to the pagan Roman festival of Saturnalia, where enslaved people were able to speak freely and criticize those who enslaved them without punishment, and, excitingly, they also got to enjoy a feast. Max Harris, however, has argued that the Feast of Fools has more to do with examples of medieval liturgical drama like the Feast of the Ass, the Play of Daniel, and the Office of the Star than it does with such earlier Roman pagan feasts. During the Feast of Fools, there was plenty of cross-dressing, gambling, drinking, and other risque behavior. So, naturally, this didn't really sit well with the church, and after repeated pressure and regulation attempts by ecclesiastic officials, the tradition eventually petered out in the 16th century. But it took many centuries for the festival to end. So, for example, in 12th century Paris, the Feast of Fools on New Year's Day at Notre-Dame-de-Paris, the celebration was not entirely banned, but it was regulated, so part of the Lord of Misrule was restrained, so that they were allowed to intone some prose and wield the Pricenter's staff, but they could only play this part before the Vespers feast, not during it. During the second Vespers, it had been the custom that the presenter of the fools should be deprived of his staff when the verse of the Magnificat, Deposuit Potentes de Sede, he has put down the mighty from their seat, was sung. Hence, the feast was often known as the Festum Deposuit. There was a similar case of a legitimized Feast of Fools at Sun around 1220, where the whole text of the office has survived. There are many prose interpolations added to the ordinary liturgy, but nothing too unseemly crept in. Again, just exemplifying the regulation around the Feast of Fools before it was entirely banned. This prose was not entirely part of the office, but only a preliminary to the Vespers Feast. In 1245, Cardinal Odo, the papal legate in France, wrote to the chapter at Sun's Cathedral demanding that the feast be celebrated with no unclerical dress and no wreaths of flowers. So, again, maybe a less exciting Feast of Fools than we might imagine today. The Feast of Fools eventually was forbidden under the severe penalties of the Council of Basel in 1431, and a strongly worded document issued by the Theological Faculty of the University of Paris in 1444. Numerous decrees of provincial councils followed. The Feast of Fools was then officially condemned by early Protestants, and among Catholics it seems that the abuse had largely disappeared by the time of the Council of Trent, though instances of festivals like the Feast of Fools survived in France as late as the end of the 16th century. Of course, we might know of Victor Hugo, who created a romantic account of the Feast of Fools in his 1831 novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, in which it's celebrated on January 6, 1482, and Quasimodo serves as the Pope of Fools. Another tradition we see in medieval Europe is New Year's gifting. 
In late medieval France, the New Year was celebrated by partaking in the Etren, an annual gift-giving ritual with roots in Roman antiquity. Originating from the Latin strena, the term etren encompassed both the ritual act of gift-giving as well as the actual gifts themselves. Thus, on New Year's Day, the members of the nobility gave one another exquisitely made objects known as joyaux. Few of these resplendent pieces are extant today, but we do have inventories from the Valois court that preserve a wealth of information on the kinds of items that were presented for the Etren and the identities of their original donors and recipients. The only surviving non-manuscript Etren is the Golden Rosel, a multi-figured masterpiece of 15th century Parisian gold and enamel work. Positioned atop a golden platform, the virgin and child loom large beneath a gem-encrusted trellis, towering over delicate representations of infant saints and the kneeling figures of Charles VI and a knight. Below this assemblage stands a small white horse with its agitated mouth open, led by a page in an elegant dress. This joyeux, presented by Isabeau of Bavaria to her husband Charles VI on New Year's Day in 1405. The Valois inventory includes notes of other portraits of the king identified within the database as the subject of Charles VI of France. Other notable indexed Valois subjects include Philip the Bold, Charles V of France, the Wise, and, of course, John, the Duke of Berry. Curiously enough, the most famous portrait of the Duke of Berry, that is, from a painting we've discussed before on this podcast, the January calendar page of the Très Rich Heures, does not show a representation of gift exchange. Nevertheless, the luxurious metalwork on display in this painting and the finery of the Duke and other figures underscore the absolute lavishness of New Year's celebrations in the medieval period. Gifting and gift exchange was a major element of both secular and sacred life in the medieval period, permeating the economy, politics, spirituality, and even the act of bookmaking itself. Many luxurious works of art that have been preserved today were initially conceived of as gifts. Our understanding of gifting culture is informed by the images of donation and patronage found in medieval manuscripts. Scenes of well-off individuals giving to charity, political leaders culling favor through a well-considered gift, and books presented to royal or ecclesiastic patrons all demonstrate the often complex and dynamic system between the gift-giver and the recipient in the medieval world. An altarpiece to a particular saint was viewed not only as a gift to the church, but as an offering, a gift, to the saint themselves— Such gifts participated in a sacred system of reciprocity, wherein human, material offerings were exchanged for the intercession of saints, Mary, or Christ, in the everyday affairs of the devoted follower who exchanged the gift. These are known as votive offerings, gifts that are made either in fulfillment of a vow to a sacred figure or offerings left in gratitude to a saint. You might be familiar with the term votive from votive candles today. 
These are usually tall, 24-hour candles in glasses or tiny tea-like candles that are left as offerings at a shrine site. That space could be a special place inside of a cathedral, or we might find votive candles accumulated around roadside memorials today. Secular gifts, like the New Year's joyaux, were extremely important social objects, helping to form bonds and political allegiances. Although we don't currently have any joyaux, at least not that we know of at Les Lumières, we do currently have a casket that might have been given as a gift with an image of a fool on the exterior. Medieval coffrets and caskets of this type are typically known by the German descriptor Minnekasken, which freely translated means gifts of love or, more literally, boxes of love. Surviving accounts from the time of their production refer to them simply as kistlin, or ledlin, for those made of leather, and the term minikaskin was not in fact coined until the 19th century to describe their courtly and amorous iconography. Like ivory examples produced in France during the period, minikaskin most probably functioned as keepsakes for jewelry and other treasured possessions and are likely to have been given as gifts. They are generally united in their use of a reddish ground color and a bold, limited palette of blues, greens, reds, and whites over the top. Alongside these are the metallic element bismuth, painted in liquid form to give a lustrous, tin-like sheen to certain details, and that's a typical component in the minikaskin decoration. The custom of decorating wood caskets in this manner may have started in imitation of imported Islamic examples. So, despite the overwhelming prevalence of secular imagery, many of these richly ornamented boxes found their way into church treasuries, where they were gifted and repurposed to function as lockable reliquaries. Looking at our casket from above, we see a painted, speckled white frame on the lid, where two lovers appear amongst fruiting vines, serenaded by a fool who contorts his body in a playful dance. Occupying the entire right-hand half of the scene, the fool wears a vivid costume of blue, green, and white, with a bird's head sprouting from one shoulder and characteristic donkey ears on his hood. The couple ignore their entertainer, absorbed in each other. The man wears a bright red toque jauntily angled atop his blonde locks and an open-fronted doublet of the same color and material cut away in a U-shaped curve to reveal a finely pleated white shirt. His counterpart is clothed in a simple blue-gray dress. Her hair is bound in a large headdress gathered at the front under a white button. Both figures' cheeks are flushed with red, perhaps suggesting their reactions to the fool's presence and his role in setting up their armorous courtship. The sides of the box are loosely painted with floral sprays. Of the minikaskin that have survived, only a small handful have painted decoration, and this iconography with the lovers serenaded by a fool is, apparently, unique. It may have been taken from contemporary secular and moralizing texts, like Sebastian Brandt's Ship of Fools that was published in Basel in 1494. 
The many woodblock prints that accompany Brandt's text in early printed editions depict figures of a type compellingly close in style to those decorating the lid of our Minicaskin. The precise appearance of the fool on our casket also strongly recalls the bird and dragon-like costumes used in Basil's annual Fashnacht celebrations. And it may even have been intended, in part, to evoke these specific characters. It's not impossible to imagine the fool on this casket lid might also recall the costumes donned by townspeople during the Feast of Fools on New Year's Day. Now, as we've just discussed, gifting and reciprocity was extraordinarily important to medieval people, but so was time travel. We have all experienced the feeling that a single year can contain five or seven whole years inside of itself over the last year, but for medieval people, that was a reality. With the date of the new year beginning on March 25th, December 25th, January 1st, and other times in many different places, merchants, pilgrims, soldiers, and diplomats all performed incredible feats, leaping through time as they traveled. As Francis and Joseph Guise surmised in their book, Life in a Medieval City, quote, A traveler setting out from Venice on March 1st, 1245, the first day of the Venetian year, finding himself in 1244 when he reached Florence, and after a short stay going on to Pisa, where he would enter the year 1246. Continuing westward, he would return to 1245, when he entered Provence, and upon entering in France before Easter, on April 16th, he would be once more in 1244. End quote. Of course, we all understand that these people were not really traveling through time. They were simply traveling through different systems of time, as they crossed a wide and diverse geography. But the connection between time, travel, and luxury goods was consistently maintained throughout the ancient and medieval period. This can be seen in many biblical stories, but perhaps most quintessentially in depictions of adoration of the Magi. Like time, the adoration of the Magi is an enormous subject that is impossible for us to cover in an hour-long podcast, let alone this 30-minute one. Today, we'll close our chat by focusing on the basics of the imagery or the iconography that you see in medieval books of ours with images of the adoration of the Magi, with a particular focus on the act of gifting and the Magi as what we might now think of as time-traveling figures. With the birth of Christ, we have the birth of a new time for medieval people. It is the beginning of Christian time, the end of an old epoch and the beginning of a new, with Christ as the king of the world. Christ's birth also represented the birth of liturgical time and the cyclical repeating layer of feasts and liturgical celebrations that occur every year in the Christian calendar. If you're interested in this subject, I suggest that you check out episode 32 on time and the November calendar. Although time is a wide subject, I am certain we will return to with more depth in future episodes as well. For this particular subject in the church calendar, the Adoration of the Magi is commemorated in Latin Christianity as the Feast of the Epiphany on January 6th. 
The Greek Orthodox Church commemorates the Adoration of the Magi on the Feast of the Nativity, that is, on December 25th or Christmas Day. So, what is the Adoration of the Magi? Well, this is the name of a subject often depicted in the Nativity of Jesus, in which the three magi, represented as three kings, have found Jesus by following a star. They are depicted crowded around the baby, bowing before him and laying down gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This scene is related in the Bible by Matthew 2.11, quote, on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another path." End quote. Christian iconography has considerably expanded this brief account of the biblical magi and used it to press the point that Jesus was recognized, right from his earliest infancy, as the king of the world. We often see this scene depicted in those sculptural nativity crush which we discussed last week. However, we also see the adoration of the magi depicted in manuscripts and especially in books of ours. We have two very different depictions of the Adoration of the Magi in books of ours currently at Les Lumières, that is, in BOH 205 and 215. The Thoret, or Thorode, ours, which you can find in our inventory as BOH 215, is a critical work for the formation of the style of the gifted illuminator known as the Master of the Boethius of Montpellier, who was active in Metz in the mid-14th century and is influenced by the well-known Parisian artist Jean Pucel and Jean Lenore. This manuscript was made around the year 1340, and it contains a staggering 40 miniatures, that is, two full-page illuminations, seven miniatures, seven large historiated initials, and 24 fascinating calendar miniatures, which we've mentioned previously. The book is filled with delightful marginalia, a cat-like lion, hounds, hares, boars, monkeys, and angels playing music. Folio 74 Verso, with the depiction of the Adoration of the Magi, is no different. In the margins here, we find, in the bottom right corner of the page, a dark brown unicorn with a shockingly long horn that extends alongside three lines of text. This unicorn is gracefully seated in a pile of leaves with a gold leaf ground. Behind the unicorn, in the lower left corner, is a green and blue dog, perhaps placed there to disguise a catchword that shows through the pigment. Above the dog, an angel with a tarnished, rubbed-out face plays music, and along the top border in the margins, a dog chases an anxious-looking hare. The actual Adoration of the Magi scene takes place within an illuminated initial D that begins the word for God, Deus, that is supported along its left edge by another angel.
This manuscript sparkles with an extravagant use of gold leaf, and this page is no different, with the entire background between the figures in this main scene coated in a flat ground of gold. The Virgin, who appears holding the Christ child at the far right of the D, wears an enormous, flat, three-pointed crown of gold leaf as well. Two of the Magi are standing in the background, also wearing crowns, but these are painted, one a light pink and one painted in red. They each hold ungent jars, cylindrical containers with a round top, perhaps suggesting that they are the two kings who bring frankincense and myrrh. These containers very closely resemble Islamic objects like the Pyxis of al-Mugira. They both gesture to the sky, where, right at the center of the D, a six-pointed star sits within a green orb against the solid gold-leaf background. The third magi is cramped into the bottom left corner of the D, crouching and contorting his body to kneel before the red-robed Christ, who holds his arms out expectantly. This is the eldest magi, with a long beard and balding head. He has taken off his white crown and holds it against his kneeling legs. With the other hand, he raises up a rectangular gift to the child, perhaps intended to be the gift of gold, although the object is cloudy and difficult to read on the page after centuries of use. This dynamic scene, like all of those throughout the manuscript, is dominated by the bold use of gold leaf and playful social interactions of text, marginal image, and historiated initial. In comparison, our Book of Hours by the Master of the Prayer Books of 1500, or BOH 205, is devoid of such bold medieval use of gold leaf. It is characterized instead by illusionistic Renaissance borders. The painting is attributed to the master of the prayer books of 1500, an illuminator whose elegant and courtly style is found in a group of prayer books painted at the turn of the century, as well as some other important secular manuscripts. Our artist collaborated with others on the famous Rothschild prayer book. On folio 82 verso, we find a full-page illumination of the Adoration of the Magi. These borders contain a variety of illusionistic flowers. The central image contains detailed, portrait-like figures with highly distinguished features. The Virgin Mary and the Christ Child, who is depicted nude this time, are painted with pure white pigment, like the petals of the flowers in the borders, while the other figures, the Magi and Joseph, are painted with a range of flesh tones. This reminds us of another important aspect of the adoration of the Magi in art that we will not, unfortunately, cover today, that is, the development of the Black Magus and the use of the Magi as a means of exploring developing theories about race, skin tone, lightness and whiteness, as well as ideas around conversion and humanity that are expressed in these paintings. My undergraduate thesis advisor, Dr. Paul Kaplan, is the author of the important early book, The Rise of the Black Magus in Western Art, written in 1985. We will discuss medieval and early modern theories of race in a future episode where we will return to the Magi. 
In this image, in the Book of Hours by the Master of the Prayer Books of 1500, though, the eldest Magus still kneels at the bottom left corner while Mary and the Christ child are seated on the right. He has removed his crown and placed it on the ground at the Virgin's feet, and offers a golden, round-topped coffret like a stereotypical treasure chest to the naked child who smiles as he touches the lid of the box in acceptance. The two standing magi behind this moment of gift exchange are markedly different. On the left, the magus has short hair, a more sallow, olive-toned complexion, and is frozen in the act of removing his cap-like crown. To the right, the long-haired third magus looks on solemnly, still wearing his puffed-out powder-blue crown. Both figures hold circular golden containers. No star is visible in this scene, as the linear perspective presented by the artist only allows us a glimpse into the dilapidated stable. However, a few thin shoots of golden light streak down from the top center of the frame, suggesting the light of the star above that guided the magi, and echoing the thin, circular halos of the virgin and child. Both images in our Books of Hours are masterful but strikingly different works from different times, exemplifying the diversity of masterful illumination found in Books of Hours. Although they both contain a similar composition, the works appear entirely different. So whether celebrated on January 6th or on December 25th, This moment of gifting spans across New Year's time, adding an additional reason for festive gifting during the New Year's season. The Magi are depicted bringing gifts to the Christ child, offerings, as a means of showing their loyalty, love, and devotion to him. Gifting strengthens social bonds and participates in a continuous system of exchange and giving that helps us all feel closer to one another. So that's all for today's episode on this gifting season. I hope that you're enjoying some healthy, safe holiday celebrations. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast and even to share this podcast with a friend who might be interested. Your ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really help more people find the podcast. We would love also to hear your thoughts on this episode's topic. Do you know something about gift exchange, the adoration of the Magi, or New Year's traditions? Let us know. You can find out more about the manuscripts we discussed on our website, and you can also reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Listen to the Mirror. Thanks for listening, and Happy New Year!